say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than, he's will, than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you, and sorry, dwells with you, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious, precious portion of Scripture. Lord, that contains so many glorious promises. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see who you are, Lord Jesus, from this passage, and that you would help us as we see who you are, to see who we really are, to see the reality of our relationship with you and all of the blessings that that entails for those who are truly in you. But Lord, I pray that for those here who do not know you, have, do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, who are not truly born again, Lord, I pray that you would point each heart to you. You would help them to see that there is no cure for sin apart from Jesus Christ. Not living a better life, not changing our ways, not even feeling sorry about what has happened before, but Lord, faith in Christ and Christ alone. And Lord, for those of us who, who do know and believe these truths, I pray, Lord, that, that you would cause them to be the focus of our attention. Lord, that you would help us to see that we all need the gospel, that we need the gospel every bit as much today as, the, as we did the first day that we were saved. Lord, I pray that, that through the knowledge of the gospel, Lord, that you would cause love for Christ to spring up in our hearts, and out of love for Christ, that obedience would take place in our lives for the glory of your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I've, uh, I've really been, been looking forward to preaching this passage because it contains some great and glorious truths that are often overlooked and often misunderstood. Um, this is a very Trinitarian passage of Scripture, as we'll see, and, and I'm going, I'm, it's going to take two weeks for me to, to cover the whole text, and we'll focus on, on the aspect of the, of the Holy Spirit next week, but I, I just want us to see, it's going to be here as well, I want us to see the Godhead in this passage, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I, and I want us to see as well who we are, that in our understanding of God, that we would understand who we are, and, and again, as I pray, that we would understand all the blessings that that entails. But last week, we showed the answers that Jesus provides to the questions, where are you going and who are you? And I explained that those answers are vital because if you want, if you want to know who Jesus is, you have to know who he is and is according to his own words. And you have to understand where he is going. But they're also vital because they reveal who we are and reveal where we are going. So this morning we're going to look at the third question that I introduced last week, what are you doing? So in the same way that what Jesus does reveals who he is, what Jesus does reveals what we will also be doing. But it's equally important to understand how we are doing it. It's not enough just to know the right things to do, but you need to understand how you're doing it. You even need to understand why you're doing it. A few years ago, well, really more than a few years ago, I had a, um, a 1983 Jeep CJ7. And it was a lot of fun driving around town with my friends with, with the top off and even more fun um, driving um, off-road on, on the trails. And it had, it had a nice, simple motor. It had, a, it had a straight six. And unlike today's vehicles that are packed full of electronics, it was, it was actually pretty easy to work on the motor yourself. And there was enough space in the engine bay that you could even almost, almost climb in to work on the motor. But it was an older vehicle, and, and eventually the head gasket started to leak. And I, it's, I tried a quick fix, but that didn't do it. And I uh, did not have the money to go to, to a mechanic, so I asked my dad for help. Now, if you know my dad, my dad is the kind of person that, that will, if he doesn't know how to do something, he will figure out how to do it. And he might not do it, he might not do it quickly, but he will do it perfectly. And if you've seen the work that he's done around the house, that's, that is, is definitely the case. So I asked my dad for, for help, and he was, was more than willing to help. So I bought a, a Haynes manual and a torque wrench and, and set out to, to fix the head gasket on my Jeep. And long story short, we fixed it. The, it fixed, and there was, there was no more leaking, and it ran perfectly for the rest of the time that I had the vehicle. But more accurately, accurately I didn't fix the Jeep. It wasn't me who fixed the Jeep. I might have been the one that was tightening the bolts, but my dad guided me every step of the way. So if I said I did it, it would be misleading at best. It was my dad who fixed the Jeep. Now there's an important spiritual parallel here. Whenever we do anything good, we can't take the credit. It is God doing it through us. 
Next week, or in two weeks, we're going to look at John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Think about that. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Not one thing, not a, not a few things, no thing. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing for the glory of God. Of God, You can't do anything of eternal value apart from Christ. Philippians 2.13 is, is similar. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You can't serve God. You can't even have the desire to serve God unless God gives you the ability to do so. And that way he gets the glory. So when it comes to to doing the right thing, Christ helps you and the Holy Spirit helps you. Now, obedience through Christ and obedience through the Holy Spirit are important themes, and they're they're so important that Jesus is going to devote quite a bit of, of this chapter and also chapters 15 and 16 to this very issue. And they're going to come up again and again, and and we'll see we'll see if if when you think about if there's something that's really important. That, that, you, that you want to talk about. You're going to do it. You're going to come back and do it again and again and again, right? How much more so if you know that this is the last opportunity that you're going to be have to talk to people about these things? So Jesus here spends a bulk of, of the remainder of his ministry to his disciples before the cross teaching about these issues. And next week, we're going to focus on obedience through the Holy Spirit. But this week, we want to focus on obedience directly through Christ. So we're going to ask the question, what are you doing? What are you doing? In verse 11 of chapter 14, Jesus had just said, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He, he, again, called the disciples to belief in him and all that entails based on his words and based on his works. Now, of course, the testimony of Jesus is more than enough for us to believe in him, but he also gives his works as proof of who he is. He said essentially the same thing to the Pharisees in John 10, verses 37 and 38. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So the love that Jesus has for the Father is demonstrated in his obedience to the Father. He says the same thing um, down in verse 31 of chapter 14. But I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father so that the world may know that I love the Father. So Jesus showed his love for the Father by his works. He showed his love for his his Father by his works. But what does Jesus mean when he here talks about works? Works does include the, the signs or the miracles that Jesus performed, but works is actually broader than that. It includes everything Jesus did. Everything Jesus did it includes the acts of submission and devotion to the Father, the acts of, of service and humility, the acts of mercy and compassion, and yes, even raising the dead. 
So then in verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Whoever believes in Jesus will also do the works that he does. Now think about the things that Jesus did. And his disciples will do the same. Now the ministry of the first disciples was confirmed with powerful miracles. They healed the sick, they cast out demons, they even raised the dead. In Acts chapter 3, Peter healed a man who was lame from birth. In Acts 5, people actually carried their sick into the street so that the, the shadow of Peter would fall on them and then they would be healed. In Acts 20, Paul preached so long that a young man fell asleep from a third-story window and died. Think about that next time you want to complain about a long sermon. But then Paul raised him to life again. Now, we don't see miracles like that anymore. We don't see miracles like that in our midst, but we do see the disciples of Jesus doing what Jesus did. If we believe in Jesus, we will do what Jesus does. Friends, this is immeasurably more than wearing a WWJD bracelet. Immeasurably more than that. It means serving humbly. It means proclaiming boldly. It means loving selflessly. It means obedience at any cost. At any cost. But this, what Jesus is saying here, this is not a command. It's not a command. It's a declaration. It's a declaration Whatever, whoever believes in Jesus will do what Jesus does. If you don't understand this, you're not going to understand this passage and you won't understand the Christian life. Whoever believes in Jesus will do what Jesus does. Fellow Christian, who Jesus is has changed who we are. And so what Jesus does will change what we do. Jesus proclaimed truth. We will proclaim truth. Jesus hated sin. We will hate sin first and foremost in our own lives, but also in the lives of others. Jesus was holy. We will be holy. Jesus was humble. We will be humble. Jesus was loving. We will love. Now, of course, we don't do any of these things perfectly, but we are being changed into his image. We are being made more like Jesus, just as we have been predestined to be. But Jesus doesn't end there. Incredibly, he says, greater works than these will he do because he is going to the Father. Now, maybe you've studied this and have a little bit of a hard time with this passage. Greater works than Jesus? It's hard to imagine greater works than feeding 5,000 men or raising Lazarus from the dead, but he says we will do greater works. Now, I don't know anybody who has raised or has fed 5,000 men, although ladies in our church may have come close, but I don't know anybody who has raised anyone from the dead. But then again, maybe I do. Jesus is speaking here of greater spiritual works, Spiritual works. They will be, as as A.T. Robertson says, not greater in quality, but greater in quantity. These greater works include all forms of ministry, evangelistic ministry, teaching ministry, mercy ministry, and so on. Think of Peter at Pentecost. 
once who was cowering at a slave girl's questions, now preaches boldly, and 3,000 people are added to the church in Acts 2. Or, or preaching with John in Acts chapter 4 to the rulers and the elders, the rulers, elders, and scribes. The rulers were astonished and recognized that the disciples, John and Peter, had been with Jesus. And so the believers responded by lifting up their voices to God in praise and prayer for boldness for themselves. And then under the ministry of the, of the apostles, the church spread throughout the Roman Empire and possibly went as far east as Spain and as far west as India. I got that backwards. East as far as, as India and west as far as Spain. But it's, don't just think of those first disciples. Think of Martin Luther risking being burnt at the stake as he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg in the 16th century. Think of William Carey, the father of modern missions, proclaiming the gospel in India, and George Whitfield proclaiming the gospel to over 10,000 people in Boston as, as thousands of people came to faith in the first great awakening. In the 19th century, think of George Mueller establishing orphanages entirely by faith and William Wilberforce fighting to end the slave trade for over 20 years until he finally succeeded. Think of countless martyrs who to this day are suffering all sorts of shameful treatment and are even giving up their lives rather than deny the faith. Such individuals have reformed nations for the glory of God. But that kind of power is not limited to Peter and the other disciples. It's not just given to famous reformers and preachers. It's not just given to missionaries and martyrs. It's given to all of Christ's disciples. All of Christ's disciples, even to Christ's disciples in this very church. Now, of course, we're not going to go around healing people with our shadows. But we are able to raise the dead. We are able to raise the dead. We're able to proclaim the gospel that gives true life. The only gospel that leads to the only true life. Brothers and sisters, we are all ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21. We are all able to do that if we're in Christ. Because it's Christ who is doing that in us and through us. So let's look at that. Let's look at how we are doing it. Where did the power come from for Peter and the apostles to establish the church throughout the known world? Where did Luther get his boldness? Where did Whitfield get his preaching ability? Where did Wilberforce get his tenacity? Not from themselves. Not from themselves. We saw a couple of weeks ago what would come of Peter's self-reliance that didn't go very well for him. But the power that Peter received and the power that all Christians receive comes from the fact that Jesus is going to the Father. Look at verse 12. Greater works than these will he do because 
I am going to the Father. Remember the difference between Judas and Peter. Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat, but Jesus was interceding, interceding for Peter. And he wasn't interceding for Judas. So Judas was possessed by Satan and went on to to betray Jesus and eventually killed himself. And the devil is still a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. But Jesus is still interceding for his people. Beloved, think about this. Jesus at this very moment is interceding for you. He's at the right hand of God praying for you, fellow Christian. Romans 8.34, he lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God. Hebrews 7.25. Beloved, Jesus is interceding for us at the throne of God. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus tells us that we're to pray. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So first we need to see that, that this is so that the Father will be glorified in that he's revealed in what the Son does. But you see that. Twice he says that. He says, I will do it. I will do it. Jesus does it. Next, we see that the, we need to see that the, the prayer is to be made in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Now, we hear people saying the words, in Jesus' name, amen, all the time. But what does it really mean? What does it really mean to pray in the name of Jesus? The words in Jesus' name is not some magical incantation that automatically compels God to give you what you want. For starters, to pray in the name of Jesus means to pray with your will submitted to God's. As Jesus taught in the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6.10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. But prayer in Jesus' name is even more than that. S. Michael Hoodman explains that praying in Jesus' name means praying with his authority and asking God the Father to act on our prayers because we come in the name of his Son, in the name of Jesus. Praying in Jesus' name means the same thing as praying according to the will of God, and the authority of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. The gospel is reflected in this prayer. I like the way it's described in the Reformation Study Bible. This means invoking the Son's mediation as the one who secures our access to the Father and looking to Him for support as our intercessor in the Father's presence. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we we trust that, that we are going before the throne of God, not with our own righteousness, 
Not as though we deserve to be in God's presence. And if we understand our sin, we know that we have no business being in God's presence. We need a mediator. We need the blood of Christ to plead for us. He who died for our sins, he who took our guilt and gave us his righteousness, he is the one who gives us access before the throne of God. But this is also a a Trinitarian prayer, as I said in the introduction. And the common pattern of prayer is to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said, next week we're going to focus more on, on the Holy Spirit, but But I have to say here that that some teachers have taken this pattern too far. Bruce Ware, in his book, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, says, We come to the Father in the name of Jesus, but we are able to come only in the power of the Spirit. He goes on, Christian prayer as such is prayer to the Father in the name and by the authority of the Son and the power of the Spirit. He's he's speaking about it in exclusive terms. He's he's inferring that, that the only Christian prayer follows this pattern. And J. Vernon McGee, who is is another respected Bible teacher, I believe he also goes too far when he says, when you pray to Christ or the Holy Spirit, you rob yourself of the great intercessor, that is the Lord Jesus. So he says, if you want to be right in your prayer life, pray to the Father and pray in the name of Christ, saying that's the only way to do it. Now, I said that although although the, the pattern is to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit, there's other times that we go outside of that pattern, praying to the Son directly. And Jesus told the disciples to do that in the very next verse. He says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So it's, it's, it comes from, from Jesus. Now, granted, this is, there's a, a textual variant there, and some manuscripts don't include that me. But there are other prayers directly to Jesus in the Scriptures. In Acts 1, 24 and 25, the disciples prayed to Jesus about the replacement for Judas. In Acts 7, Stephen prayed to Jesus as he was being stoned. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and 9, Paul prayed to Jesus for healing from the thorn in the flesh. So there's a a pattern in Scripture of to the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit, but but we don't need to to hold that as just the only formula, the only way to pray. Because I believe when when we do that, we're actually creating a false division, a false dichotomy in the Godhead. The Son is God. The Son is God, and He is able, as the omnipotent upholder of the universe, to respond to our prayer. And although there is no direct prayer to the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, again, I believe that there is nothing wrong with praying to the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would encourage it, because again, the Holy Spirit is fully God, and as such, is able to answer prayers. But then finally, I wanted to look again quickly at the fact that, that when we pray in Jesus' name, in his authority, through his blood, according to his will, he does it. He does it. Again, he says that in verses 13 and verse 14. Remember my illustration about the Jeep. 
Remember what, what Jesus says in John 15, apart from him we can do nothing. So now let's turn back to our initial question. Again, what are you doing? Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So now Jesus focuses on a, on a specific aspect of the works of disciples, that of obedience. And as D.A. Carson points out, Jesus has demonstrated his love for his own in, in, uh, in John 13, 1. He's declared his love for them and then commanded them to love one another in John 13, 35. Now for the first time in the fourth gospel, he speaks of their love for him. And our love for Jesus will be revealed in what we do. In the same way as Jesus' love for the Father is shown by what he did. Jesus re repeats the statement in various ways in the rest of the chapter, but in verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And then in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then the corollary in verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So when we consider this, first we need to consider what this obedience entails. What does Jesus mean here by my commandments? Later on he says my words. He's saying submitting to all the things that he's told us to do. And commandments, though, here refers primarily to the Ten Commandments, as found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, God's moral law. But some would try to draw a distinction between those commandments and the commandments of Jesus. And again, to do so is to draw a false dichotomy in the will of God. Although morality changes in our culture all the time, God never changes. I'm amazed to see how much morality has, has changed. and I've, I've been a Christian for about 20 years, which is really just not, not a very long time, relatively speaking. But homosexuality, once condemned as an abomination, is now promoted. New Age thinking, which was once considered laughable, is now accepted even in many churches. The Lord's Day, once respected even in the broader culture, is now just another shopping day. But God never changes, so right and wrong never changes. Jesus is God, and he doesn't have a different set of commands than those of the Father. Look again at verse 24. Jesus says, The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now turn back to, to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law and the prophets is, is a way of saying, referring to the Old Testament. And when Jesus says to fulfill them, he means to fully obey the righteous requirements. So does, but if Jesus fulfilled them, does that mean that we then do not have to obey? He goes on, Not even a dot or an iota of the law will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. 
And when you, when you walk out of the doors here after church, you'll notice that, that the earth has not yet passed away. It's still there. So these commands are still in place. He goes on. He says, if you want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven, teach and do them. If you want to be least in the kingdom of heaven, teach people to, to relax them and relax them yourself. There is, there, God's morality does not change. They're the same commandments. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, 36, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment in the law is, what did he say? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, Celine recommended that we, that we do a, a pop quiz this morning. And so, without looking at the cover of your bulletin, I want you to just take a moment and think about how many of the Ten Commandments can you list. So, without, don't cheat. Don't look at the cover of your bulletin. Just take a minute and, and just in your mind, you got ten fingers. How many of the Ten Commandments can you list in your mind? Need more time? Okay, time's up. How many got 10 out of 10? A few. Okay, nine? Eight? Less than eight? I guess everybody else. Okay. But now just if you, you can turn to your bullet to the cover and, and look at the answers. If you notice, that love for God sums up the Ten Commandments. Love for God, and out of the love for God, love for others. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew 22. Now the first four deal with primarily with our relationship with God, and the last six with our relationship with each other. But the, the fifth commandment about, sorry, the fourth commandment about honoring the, the Lord's day, the Sabbath day, is actually, it's, it's, part of it also has to do with love for others. Yesterday, uh, there was drywallers at, at the house. And uh, um, I will, our, my relationship with the drywallers started off a little bit rocky. And, uh, and I, I take full responsibility for that. I really wasn't ready for them. I didn't have the rooms all set up for them to, to come in and drywall. So as there was, I thought there was going to be one person working, and I thought I could, I'd be able to, it was going to be a woman, I thought I could work ahead of her um, to, to get the rooms cleared. But then three people showed up, and they said, look, we're a fast crew. We just, like, I had been out for a run and came back, and Jane was a little bit flustered because they said they're, they're, not, they're not even staying. They're out of here. They're leaving. And then so I, I went downstairs, and every time I looked at one of them, they gave me a dirty look. So, so they, I didn't start off on the right foot with the drywallers. But over the, over the course of the few days when they've been there and, and trying to be kind and friendly and offer them you know, coffee and things like that, I've, I've tried to 
um, to, to win their hearts. And, um, and I, think they, they, I think they softened, and they actually smiled at me occasionally, which is usually a pretty good sign. Um, but then I was, I was working in the living room on my, on my sermon yesterday and, and overheard them saying, well, we'll have to come back tomorrow and finish up. And I thought, uh-oh. Um, as many of you know, I, I, I am Sabbatarian. I believe that the, the, in the perpetuity of the, the command to rest on the Lord's day. And I thought, I'm being tested here. And, and I thought, okay, what's, what's going to win out? Fear of man? Because I'm, I'm concerned that these guys aren't going to like me. Or they don't like me already, and I don't want to make life more difficult for them than they already have. But I, I felt that I really needed to, to say, look, you know, I, I, um, we really need to work something else out. And so I prayed for, I prayed for, for wisdom and, and guidance, and I prayed for their hearts as well. And I, because I, I felt that, 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 that the command, it's actually a moral command. It gives them an opportunity to rest. These people are working for me. I don't want them to feel that because they're behind, now they have to rush to get this done. That means that they don't get to rest at all. And so whatever they do on their own, I'm not responsible for. But what they do in my house, I have a responsibility for. So I prayed, and, and then and I spoke to them. I spoke to, to one of the guys in particular, and, and kind of a little bit, oh, what's he going to do? It was incredible. He responded so kindly and gently and said, you know, I really, I really don't like working on, on Sunday as well. He said, you know, I've, I've read the Bible. He was not a, clearly not a believer, but he said, I, I, don't, I don't like doing it. And so then it actually created an opportunity for me to witness to him. And so just, this is just, just a, a small example. I was being tested as I was going to be preaching on these things to, to, be, to see, am, am I actually going to act on my convictions here, or am I going to let fear of man uh, overrule? And by God's grace, I, I, I was able to, to do the right thing, and, and hopefully we'll have more opportunity to share the gospel with them on Monday. So pray for my relationship with the drywallers as they come back on Monday, that they would be soft to hearing the gospel, and that I would have a, a boldness and, and, a, and a willingness and, and wisdom in, in, how I, in how I testify of Christ to them. So we just did a test where I asked you to, to list the Ten Commandments, but now I'm going to give you a much harder test. How many of the commandments are you keeping? I don't think you need as much time to do this one. Any tens? Probably not. Nines? Eights? If we understand, there's, there's actually everybody in this room got a perfect score. We all got a zero. We all got a perfect zero. That's the reality because that's the standard that we are called to is, is God's holy law. And we consistently fall short of it. Remember Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And none of us do that all the time. In fact, in the reality, we don't do that all the time. But then again, look at John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So you see kind of a problem there? 
And here's where we often get this wrong. Some people wrongly view this as an imperative, as another command. Like what a father says to, the chi- to his child, you will clean your room. You will clean your room. But this is not an imperative. This is an indicative. This is a statement of fact. This is the reality. Now, unfortunately, the King James translates it uh, that if you love me, keep my commandments. And that sounds like another command. But, but all the, the manuscripts show that there, there's, it's, it's, actually, it's actually an indicative. It's indicating reality. And here, one of the advantages of studying the Greek is that the mood of the verb is, is right there in the word. Now, unfortunately, English doesn't do that, so we have to insert a word, and, and the word that's inserted there is will. If you look at this passage in your Bible, just, just have a quick glance down the passage. Look at the number of times that the word will is there. It's actually 24 times. And all of these are indicatives. All of these are stating the reality for those who are in Christ. They're all declaring how it is. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that indicative in verse 15 is grounded in the indicative in verse 14. You will do it because Jesus will do it. But the degree to which we obey Jesus is the degree to which we love him. Remember the corollary of verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So are there any of the commandments that maybe you've been ignoring or rejecting? Maybe you've been lying to others. Maybe you've been stealing from others. Maybe you've been stealing time from your employer. I know I've been convicted of wasting time. So church, I want to ask for your forgiveness for time that, I, that, I'm, that I've wasted. It's not my time. It's God's time. Our days are not our own. Maybe your eyes have been focused on where they shouldn't be focused. It's, it's hard in this culture, and, and I'm actually I'm thankful for winter because it enforces a degree of modesty in our culture. But the degree to which we disobey is the degree to which we do not love Jesus. And I've been praying for us earnestly as a church, for my heart and for your hearts, that we would be open to see where we fall short. And if we're honest, we all fall short. So are you feeling conviction right now? Now, I'm not talking about condemnation. Because if you are in Christ, you are justified in God's sight. You've been pronounced not guilty. But are you feeling conviction for sin? That's good. 
We should all be feeling conviction because we all sin. So think for a moment about that besetting sin. The one that you've been hiding or the one that you haven't dealt with. Or maybe there's a whole raft of sins that you haven't been dealing with. Deal with it. Confess it to God and to others where necessary. Ask for forgiveness. Strive for obedience. And the same one who is convicting you of sin is the same one who will help you to overcome it. Next week, we're going to focus primarily on who that helper is. That helper is the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin. As we'll see, though, the Holy Spirit does so much more than that. The Holy Spirit doesn't just convict you of sin and then leave you wallowing in in guilt. The Holy Spirit guides you into truth. The Holy Spirit reminds you of of the the glories of the gospel. The Holy Spirit reminds you that that you have been pronounced not guilty, that, that Christ has taken your penalty, and that his righteousness has been applied to you. The Holy Spirit is regenerating you, changing you to make you more like Jesus. So no, you don't do obedience perfectly today. But by God's grace, you will do obedience better tomorrow than you did today. And you will continue growing in obedience. Continue growing in obedience. But as I, as I close here, I really, really want, I, I want to impress strongly on, on your hearts that you don't go the wrong way with this. Because some of you I know have a very sensitive consciences and some of you will walk away from this and feel discouraged. Some of you walk away from this and feel condemned. Brothers and sisters, go to Christ. Go to Christ who is interceding for you. The Holy Spirit who is interceding for you. Ask for help. Likewise, some of our midst are, are prone to, to legalism. And so the, the way that they're going to respond to this is like, okay, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Give me this, this set of rules and I'll do that. But the way to grow in obedience is not to focus on the rules. The way to obedience is to focus on Christ. I shared an illustration on Wednesday night in our Bible studies as we looked at Romans 2 about saying if you were bitten by by a death adder. Now, a death adder is a very venomous snake. And and if you're walking through the bush and they they camouflage themselves really well in the leaves, what they do is they actually have a little part of their tail that they'll they'll stick up and it looks like a worm and a bird will come in and they'll they'll strike really quickly and, and, and get the bird. Now, the bird will die instantly. But we're obviously much bigger than birds, so we've got some time. We've got probably an hour to go and get anti-venom. So if you, if you bandage it up and, and get rushed to the hospital and they say, oh, look, sorry, we're, we're all out of death adder anti-venom. But we have Taipan anti-venom. Now, Taipan is, is actually even, it's another deadly snake. Australia's got, I think, five of the top ten deadliest snakes. They say, we're out of, out of death adder antivenin, but you can have this Taipan antivenin, and they, and they inject you with it. 
What's going to happen to you? You're still going to die. You're still going to die. You need to diagnose the problem correctly. And then you need the correct treatment. The correct treatment. Now, you could, you could have a, a bottle of, of death adder antivenin sitting right there on your shelf. You could have it hanging on your wall. You could have it hanging around your neck. You could take it down and, you, and show it to people. But the only way to actually find relief, the only way to be healed is to actually take the antivenin. Brothers and sisters, there is only one antivenin for the deadly disease of sin. And that's Christ. It's Christ. You will never find obedience by chasing after laws. That's what the Pharisees did. And they just added more and more and more laws. The letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. The only way that we can find freedom from sin is by going to Christ. The only way that we can grow in obedience is by growing in love with Christ. More and more love to Christ. And you can't do that. You need the Holy Spirit to do that in your heart. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. So if, if you're here this morning and, and, and you're feeling guilty about sin, confess your lack of love to Christ. Confess that, that it's, it's showing itself in any one of a number of areas of sin. But don't leave it there. Ask for help. Ask him to fill you with love for Christ. Ask him to do what you could never do on your own. You can't change your heart. God has to do it in you. We sang this, this hymn, I believe it was last week. Make this your prayer. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you so loved us, that you sent Christ to die for our sins. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have purchased us by your blood. We thank you that you are interceding for us before the throne of the Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have made us alive in Christ and that you are regenerating us. Lord, we thank you that you are also interceding for us. And we pray now, Lord, that you would give us more love for Christ. Lord, that you would help us to, to see our sin for what it is, as open rebellion against you, and that you would change us. And you would make us more like Jesus. 
because we love him. For we ask this in his name. Amen. We're now going to close.